If you have scripture with you and you want to read along with me, many of you will reach for your phones immediately, I suppose, but um, I have two passages that I want to read. The first is from the book of Acts, chapter 7. So that's the book of Acts, chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 54. And then after that, I'll be turning to Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. The passage in Acts 7 that I'm reading is just after Stephen has given a massive speech to the council subsequent to his arrest. He's an apostle, uh, well, he's a disciple of Jesus, and he's gotten in serious trouble with the council. And so here he is. When they heard these things... They became enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. When he had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts 9, beginning to read at verse 10, Stephen is now dead. His body has been cared for. Philip has preached to people in Samaria He's converted an Ethiopian eunuch. Things are happening in the church. Saul has been on a journey on the Damascus Road. He's been blinded. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he's praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil He has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. His sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who invoked this name? Has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who were living in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. So, I'm not entirely sure what you imagined happening first thing on a Friday morning in chapel, but the story of a violent and bloody murder might not have been it. The extremist who, in the name of God, had sanctioned it, watching on happily. What a terrible story this murder of Stephen is. I don't know if you can kind of step into it and get quite how grotesque it is, this scene, or how desperately violent it is. I don't know if you can imagine what it must have sounded like or felt like to be in the baying crowd or the watching disciples as your friend is stoned in front of you. That's the first part of the readings today, really. It's this terrible, terrible scene of tragedy in the church. And of course, the second half of the reading today, after his death, picks up some of this same story, but from a slightly different perspective. It asks us to look in with different eyes, I think. I've been thinking about these stories for some years now. So in some ways, I keep telling the same sermon over and over again. I think about these two parallel passages a lot. They kind of intrigue me, if I'm honest. And I try and imagine what the real life today, here and now, pairing of these stories might be in our world. I was thinking about it this week. It sort of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Is this the leader of ISIS converting and coming into a village full of people where he's slaughtered them and saying... I now love Jesus. Accept me. Is this the captor of one of the many captives that has been beheaded recently or left shrouded, coming and saying, oh, I've I've had an amazing experience of Jesus. Will you accept me into your community of faith? Like when we try and think about what is going on here, the extreme drama and call of it, I think it stretches us in huge ways, really, because it challenges a lot about us. So if you try and imagine it, for Stephen, this man who's stoned, his death isn't in vain. That's the whole of this story, is somehow or other, when he encounters death through persecution, he's able to say things that I'm not sure most of us feel we could say very easily. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the middle of being stoned? What faith, don't you think? Or, Lord, 
Don't hold what they do against them. Still love them. Does that hit you at all? Oh my goodness, what obedience to the way of Jesus, who also at the point of death said, Father, forgive. Yeah? It's huge, I think, this Stephen bit. And then there's, of course, the man that we know, I suppose, the soul of the story. Most of us think about him and speak about him as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's our ancestor in faith. The reason I say that is because I'm guessing that most of us are from Gentile backgrounds. And so in many, many ways, we're the inheritance of his faith. It's amazing. But for Saul, the meeting of Jesus stops him in his tracks en route to Damascus. And for him, his heart is is changed, his mind is changed, his life is changed. There's something that aligns him in a completely different direction. And there's choice here, there's humility here. I was blind, but now I see I was wrong, but now I'm living in a different direction. I'm facing Jesus and I'm following him. I'm declaring his lordship. It changes the whole of the community of the church, does Saul's conversion. I suppose it shows us that as a new convert, he has an immense courage. Imagine what it would be like to allow a disciple of Jesus to lay hands on you while you're blind. Just imagine that for a second. You can't see. You're immensely vulnerable in those moments. And this new Lord, Jesus, has said that you're going to be healed, and so you trust that. But then the leader of a church in a place that you've been persecuting comes and says, let me lay my hands on your head. What would your instinct be? I don't know. I think mine might have been, um, can I hold your hands and lay them on my own head so that I can feel the force with which they come? Can I um, guide this moment? Can I direct it? Can I lead it somehow? But no, in those moments, he's immensely vulnerable. And Ananias is immensely obedient. As much as this is a story of a miracle, really, a complete turnaround of a life, an utter refocus for someone, it's not really Stephen that interests me in this story. And it's not really Saul. I find myself compelled to think about Ananias. I don't know how many of you have given him much thought before. You can waggle your eyebrows at me if you have, but I'm guessing... You know, he's one of those characters. He slips in and he slips out of the passage really quickly. And then we go on to the big stuff, the drama, the huge, immense healings of the church. But this man is almost unknown to us except for this little snippet of a story where he talks and argues with God. I'm so thankful for that in this story. And then he moves on to do something that he believes to be God's command to him. I love that he's not daft. He is really not um, an idiot. I don't know what American words are. My mind has gone blank. Um, Maulem probably doesn't work either, does it? No. Well, you know what I mean. He's thick as a brick, right? He's not thick. He's not thick. He's basically God saying, do something immensely terrible. Yeah, immensely radical, immensely beyond yourself, 
much further than you think you can go. And he is not stupid. He starts saying to God, but God, I know this man and the evil he's done. I have heard his reputation. I know enough about him to know that he is the primary threat to the Christian faith. I mean, this is my paraphrase of what he's saying. Basically, he says, Lord, here I am. And then God says, and here's what I want you to do. And he goes, okay, anything but that really, Lord, is what I meant. And God doesn't let him get away with it, but neither does God blast him in the head and devoid him of all will. Instead, there's a negotiation that goes on here between these two. He says, I don't think I can do that. And God says, you can, because he is my vision for what you're about to do. And so he steps into it. I wonder if Ananias knew people who'd been stoned by the councils. I wonder if he knew people, men and women, who'd been arrested and taken into prisonment. I don't know. You know, it doesn't tell you much, this story, but it does say that he knew the evil things he'd done. And then he does this immense act of courage, I think. Such strength and such obedience, such trust, really. Because Ananias leaves the safety of his own home. And he goes to where this blinded man is. And he steps into the room. And he says what one of my friends say are the two best words in the whole Bible. He says these are his two favorite words, and I can see why. I don't know if you caught them. He walks into this house, and he says, Brother Saul. Isn't that extraordinary? And what an act of faith it is to go into this man's presence who has bloodied hands and say, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to you to heal you. I mean, if we think this is a dramatic scene for Saul in his life, imagine the witness of Ananias to faith here when he has the courage to offer such radical hospitality to somebody who's been so harmful to the community. I think it's staggering. For Ananias, he is no fool. He knows the power of the empire. He knows the power of the Jewish leaders. He knows the danger of all of this. And yet somehow or other, he's willing to step outside of all that he knows to be true and trust in God. It's extraordinary. When I was thinking about this, um, I have this kind of overarching question. So I suppose it's really this that's been bothering me for years. Bothers me about all kinds of biblical characters. Bothers me about all kinds of people through the centuries. What has shaped their lives in such a way that they're able to do these extraordinary acts of discipleship and witness? What has worked on them in such a way that in the real life moment of their every day, they're able to say yes to God with courage and bravery in ordinary things? Ananias, we know in this, this instant, and then he kind of fades into history. You know, you, you pop, his name pops up, but he's not really this remarkable character of the church. He's one of the millions of faithful saints through the centuries that have lived out their lives saying yes repeatedly to God. 
What is it that makes your faith do that? I don't know about you. We sing these songs of trust. I was so glad that that last one said trust and then grace. Trust and then grace. Grace to trust. Grace to trust. Because for me, my life has been a little bit like staggering forward, saying yes and then yes but. Or yes, but when I said yes, Lord, I really wanted that yes, not the yes you've asked of me. And I've said, yes, I'll try and trust, but then I find it hard to trust, frankly. Oh, I do trust you, Lord, but what does that mean? How do I learn to trust you more? What does this trust look like in such a way that I can defy the boundaries of my known community? What does it look like that I can welcome people who are a threat to me into my space? What does it mean to say that I can leave the safety of my own walls and go to the person who's most like my enemy? I'm guessing that most of you don't have true enemies. I mean, you might have people who don't like you very much for whatever reason. That's possible. I mean, I don't know that about you. I'm just speculating. But, um, you know, I, I guess that most of us don't know deep down, heart deep enmity. And yet some of us do. We know what it's like to be oppressed or silenced or abused for some reason or to feel excluded or on the outside or not welcome somewhere. Do you know, when I became principal of the college, I was a bit daft. I had no idea of what I was walking into in so many ways. And I went to a meeting. This is very peculiar and it's only happened once. I do want to say that. But I went to a meeting of a load of other leaders of institutions. And I sat in a room, and they were all men, and I was the only woman. And I'd been pastoring a church since I was in my early 20s, and had, obviously, when you go to a church that's pastored by a woman, you tend to agree with women in ministry. That's sort of a given. Does that make sense? And so I hadn't really encountered much in the way of oppression, I would say. I mean, I'd encountered the odd person who would leave a room because I was preaching, which isn't very nice, but it's okay. So I'm in this meeting with all of these people, and um, I said something. Like, let's say I said, oh, it's really cold outside. Silence. And then the bloke across from me said, oh, it's really cold outside. And everybody went, oh, yeah, it's cold. And I thought, oh, interesting. And so then I was like, well, you know, and the wind chill factor, it's really biting, isn't it? Silence. And the bloke over there said, oh, that wind chill factor, it's really biting. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, biting, biting. So the third time it happened to me, I said to the man next to me, is what I think is happening here happening here? to my voice in this space, because I wasn't obviously talking about cold. And he said, yeah, yeah, it is. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's not enmity, really. That's just, well, I would want to say stupidity, but that's maybe cheeky. (laughs) But (laughs) that's not a very good understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit in the people of God, frankly. It's very bad theology. But as I'm listening to this, Thinking about it afterwards, I was thinking, now what do I do with my next move with these men? How do I be radically hospitable to them? How do I connect in any way 
how do I work out my faith and my trust in this my real life experience of my faith? Now, that's a really bad example because probably most of you aren't going to be in those kinds of situations just yet. But you will have your own experiences where God asks of you to trust and obey. And the question, I suppose, is what's your yes look like? What does your forgiveness look like? What does your radical obedience or radical hospitality look like? What does it mean for you to defy the norms and to do it so simply that you brother soul people? Do you know what I mean by that? You include people into the space of a new community altogether. What does it mean for you to be the person who's so courageous that you can step outside of everything that seems safe and say yes to somebody quite different and quite dangerous to your way of life? Now, I say all of this because I think to myself, well, how do we get there? We cultivate our lives in prayer. Ananias is encountering God because he's given space to God. Do any of you lead incredibly busy lives? Yeah. How do we carve out space so that we could even hear and recognize God's voice if God were wanting to speak directly to us? How do we unstop our ears so that we've got time and space to hear God speaking? Or how do, we, how do we have such a frank relationship with God that we say our real truth, not the one we think God wants to hear? Do any of you pretend that God doesn't know what you're thinking? Or is that just me? Do, do any of you do that ever? It's like, well, if I say yes, but really I mean that. And then you're like, oh, dear. So stupid, really. You're witless sometimes. God who knows you and loves you and names you and creates you. And intimately, intimately understands you, probably gets that you're afraid right now. Maybe you should just say so. Ananias is this wonderful witness of scripture that says it's okay to argue with God. I'm kind of thankful for that. It's a dynamic relationship with God, you see. It's not God's, ooh, oppressing will. It's much more God's longing to be in conversation with you about the way of your life. And then I think, well, how does... How does my life know Jesus' pattern so well that my instincts are to obey even when it doesn't make sense? How is it that I can understand that there's nothing so bad that God can't work it out? And here I switch back to Saul in this story. Let's just suppose you've had this amazing encounter with Jesus and you've said yes. And then you start remembering all of the bad things that you've done to Jesus' people over the years. Can you see the radical forgiveness at work in this story as well? Not just Jesus to Saul, but Saul to himself. There's something powerful there about not, not being shamed by his past, but sort of saying, yes, this is what I'm like. This is what I did. And all of this passion that did this in me is now doing this. I direct it in a different direction. There's something beautiful about the obedience of this story for everybody, really. And then I think, well, do these stories, these two stories, teach us that God speaks to different people in different ways? 
The Bible is big enough to show us a God who in one moment blinds a man on a road and in another moment speaks gently to somebody and in another moment heals somebody and in another moment brings somebody into community by being called brother. I mean, there's so much going on here and none of it is the same. That's because none of us are the same. God encounters us in different ways and then we step into following God. And then I think, oh, what else is there here? Well, I could just go on and on. I've got pages of lists of things that I think we could learn from this story about following the pattern of God. But what does radical hospitality look like in this story? It looks like radical hospitality to God first, I think. That space that says, he's our host. And so we say yes to God. That's a hospitality to God, I think. Being so alive to God that we say yes to whatever it is God asks of us. But then there's radical hospitality to the people around. The disciples, well, Ananias, we know his name. Yeah, we know Saul's name. And then there's this little group tucked away in verse 18, 19, and 20. The group that baptizes Saul that make food for him and eat it with him, and then that spend time with him for several days. It's not just Ananias that's radically hospitable. It's the whole group of them that welcome him in. I think this is an amazing story. I ask myself, what was that first meal with a persecutor like? Do you think it was slightly awkward? Um, How do you like your bread? And if I don't make it the way you like it, What's your attitude going to be? I don't know. Or here, let's, let's break bread together and pass it around as a sign of the broken body of our Lord. What's that like when you're sitting with somebody who breaks bodies? Or here, let's drink this, this wine together because it looks a lot like blood. You know what blood looks like, right, Saul? We all know what blood looks like. Ah, I think there's some amazing things going on in this story if we dig deep into it. What does it look like to be in a circle of love that brothers and sisters people? I guess that's my other question. I grew up watching American high school movies. I don't know if college is anything like high school movies. I mean, I don't know if high schools like high school movies, for that matter. But I suspect that as we grow up, for all of us, we specialize in grouping people into you and me, us and them. It's something the church does too, the in and the out. And I think there's just this amazing hospitality going on here of welcoming. I was trying to think, what might that mean for um, your basketball team to be radically hospitable to uh, Western New England or Endicott or Gordon. Those are the only three I can remember from your notices. But what does it mean to be radically hospitable in a college setting? You know, I don't live your lives. I don't know you very well. But I do know this. This same God of Stephen, of Saul, of Ananias, he's still at work. 
this same God still wants a dynamic relationship with you. And this God still changes lives. Let me pray for you. Lord, I'm here with brothers and sisters, men and women. You know them intimately. You name them. Lord, you're so hospitable to us. And so I pray that as we think together today, as we allow the story of your encounter with men and women through the centuries to shape us, that you'll renew us, you'll revive us, that you'll breathe your breath of life into us, and that you'll transform us by your spirit more and more into people who have courage to say, Lord, here I am, and then follow you wherever that takes us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Praise God. Go in peace to love God and serve your brothers and sisters. You are dismissed.